You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. All right. Welcome, everybody. What a fantastic turnout. Um, there are single seats dotted around. Um, if you come with your friends, you might struggle to get a pair, but um, there's, there's uh, one over here, over there, you know. Feel free to, and the, the steps are very comfortable too. Um, so I might just begin um, begin by acknowledging uh, that this evening's event takes place on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people. I want to pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and uh, acknowledge once again that um, sovereignty has never been ceded. I'm James Parker, uh, I'm an academic here at Melbourne Law School and specifically the Institute for International Law and Humanities over there. And uh, it's my job and my pleasure uh, to introduce Jonas Stoll this evening. I'm sure many of you uh, uh, are well acquainted with Jonas's uh, work already, um, but for those of you who aren't, um, let me just say a couple of words. Uh, Jonas is a visual artist, he's a writer and researcher. It says on his website that his work deals with the relations between art, propaganda and democracy. And in a way that justifies him being in this institution already, um, but since we are in a law school and, and one of the host institutions for tonight is this Institute for International Law and Humanities, I, I do also think it's worth mentioning how frequently he, he does work with and get, uh, um, um, even appropriates and plays with legal institutions and forms like the trial, like the parliament, evidence and the plea in his work. So, one uh, amazing project called New World Summit, for instance, um, sort of long-standing, began in 2012. It's an artistic and political organization that develops parliaments um, with and, uh, and for stateless states, Jonas says, um, autonomous groups and also blacklisted political organizations. In, in one piece, he's writing about this, uh, the, the New World Summit. He says, what is on trial here uh, are fundamentally competing models of justice, indeed the very possibility of democracy, or even the law itself as an instrument of state terror. So, uh, you know, very centrally concerned with questions of law and justice. Another series of works concerning the now um, sort of ultra-notorious, ultra-nationalist uh, politician Gert Wilders uh, led to Jonas's own prosecution and ultimate acquittal, importantly, on the grounds that um, a series of artworks he'd made uh, about builders constituted death threats, that was the allegation, um, uh, and, and, and um, in, in Wilder's own kind of fertile, excessively fertile imagine, imagination, these death threats were perceived as being kind of evidence themselves of the growing threat to a certain kind of white nationalist account of Europe and European ideals. Um, Jonas has like uh, so many uh, other fascinating pro projects, I, I won't attempt to do justice to them, but I should briefly mention um, what kind of immediately brings him here today, um, which is this fabulous new book. Um, uh, it's called Propaganda Art in the 21st Century. It's just out on MIT Press. You'll see that there's a few of these flyers scattered around the place that give you a very handy discount. Um, grab one of them if you can. Um, if not, come and find me afterwards and I'll... Um, I'll sort you out. Um, I'm going to hand over to Jonas now. Um, before I do, I just want to um, briefly say a few other thank yous to uh, Michna uh, Mirkan uh, for initiating and largely coordinating uh, Jonas's visit, um, but also to Monash University, to Tara, um, to UNSW up in Sydney for partnering with us on bringing 
Jonas over, and also to Liquid Architecture, an organization we've been working with over a number of years now here at the Law School for their help promoting and bringing so many of you here. Jonas is going to speak for about 50 minutes or so. We're not going to you know, buzz him off the stage or anything, but um, roughly that, and, and then we'll be, that will be followed by questions. Um, so if you can join me in welcoming Jonas. Please. Thank you so much, James, uh, for that really kind introduction. Thank you all for coming uh, to listen, uh, listen to me, to the Melbourne Law School, for um, having me, to Liquid Architecture, as well as the University of New South uh, Wales that have uh, worked together for me to, to come here. And in particular, uh, Michna Mirkan, who is a long-term friend and collaborator in a lot of the research uh, that I want to share with you today on and the notion of propaganda art uh, relates to many projects that we worked on together. So it's, uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. I am <clears throat> still struggling with something of a minor jet lag and a dry cough. If somewhere in the middle of the talk I either collapse or retreat for a short moment, then I will ask you for your, your patience and solidarity. Um, but I'll do my best to avoid that. The aim uh, of the talk tonight is to talk about, introduce some of the key concepts of the book that James just mentioned, propaganda art in the 21st uh, century. There's something strange that, there, there's a strange aspect to the fact that um, the current rise of elected authoritarian regimes across the world has introduced a new vocabulary, terms like fake news, alternative facts, the so-called post-truth era of politics. These have become somehow familiar terms. But the really important word is lacking in that, um, that summary of, of terminology, and that is the word propaganda. The term propaganda is still used with great ease when it concerns regimes that are associated with the history of so-called totalitarianism. The troll armies of the Putin regime or the monuments of North Korea, these are still instantly identified as propaganda in mainstream uh, media. But far more hesitancy is displayed when it comes to Western democracies. For they, Western democracies have somehow supposedly moved beyond that era of propaganda and dictatorship. And of course, some very important research like that of Igor Golomstok, his book Totalitarian Art, have contributed very strongly to this idea that, total, that the art produced under dictatorships the art produced under so-called totalitarianism is somehow part of one and the same gen generic vocabulary and that this art with the disappearance of totalitarianism somehow disappeared as well, that the term propaganda was buried uh, with its history. This is an extremely problematic argumentation uh, and even uh, Golemstok's take on comparisons between the art of Nazi Germany, of the Soviet Union, Chinese People's Republic seems somewhere, somewhere awry. Um, that obviously there is a necessary critique or rejection of each of these uh, regimes, but the particular aesthetics, aesthetic vocabularies they brought about are significantly different from one another. More important, when it comes to the origins of the term propaganda, the origins of modern propaganda, it was actually the United Kingdom that founded the first modern propaganda bureau at the beginning of the First World War. It was called Wellington House. Its operations were so secret that most par elected parliamentarians were not aware of its uh, existence. And its task, amongst others, was to use 
the all red line colonial cable network that had been created to oversee the British colonies to capture, control, and manipulate information during the war. So rather than using overt propaganda, propaganda of which the sender is immediately visible, British imperial democracy developed its own model of covert propaganda by controlling information at its source. And that immediately shows or signifies a core feature of democratic propaganda, namely that democratic propaganda, in order to be effective, cannot appear as propaganda. It was Adolf Hitler who wrote in Mein Kampf about what he considered the superior propaganda efforts of the United Kingdom, of which, uh, for which the, the all-red colonial cable network was a crucial component, a crucial infrastructure. And Hitler would model his own propaganda ministry accordingly. And this, I think, is important to mention because um, in, in popular discourse, propaganda and the history of propaganda is often immediately equated with dictatorship, with Nazi Germany, with the age of so-called totalitarianism, as Golemstock argues. But this history actually shows that modern propaganda originated from modern democracy, not from dictatorship. Even the use of propaganda in Nazi Germany is much more complex than is often thought. Many will associate the, the propaganda machinery of the Nazis with overt propaganda films, such as their Ewerge Jude, the eternal Jew, that very insidiously uh, uses a kind of mock documentary format in which uh, Jew, Jewish peoples are equated with vermin, with cockroaches, with rats. But it's important to note that it was actually really hard to find an audience for this type of overt propaganda. Nazi party members were even obligated to attend to the screenings just to secure an audience. 90% of Nazi film productions was covert propaganda, uh, was overt, sorry, was covert propaganda. Entertainment, blockbusters, such as Der Größe Liebe, The Great Love, in which Nazism is turned into a normalized backdrop for dramatic love stories and family quarrels. Goebbels' ministry understood very well that when people feel they are voluntarily entertained, they are much more susceptible for propaganda narratives than when they are consciously exposed to um, overt propaganda uh, statements and ideological indoctrination. And in that sense, it's no surprise that today, the Entertainment Liaison Office of the Pentagon prefers to sponsor films like Transformers and Marvel superhero movies. The director of the Pentagon uh, uh, Entertainment Liaison Office is Phil Strub, and many of the films that get support, direct subsidies from the Pentagon, credit Phil Strub in their thank yous, and thus he gets automatically into the IMDb uh, list. So if you Google, if you look for Phil Strub in IMDb, you will see all the films that have been made with approval and sponsorship of millions by the Pentagon. The Pentagon doesn't give money directly, but if they consider a script portrays the endeavors of the US military industrial complex in an accurate way, they will provide personnel, they will provide helicopters, they will provide tanks that goes up into the millions. And it's actually even more interesting to look at films that were rejected Pentagon um, sponsorship because they were unwilling to make script um, adaptations, uh, which is a film like 13 Days, maybe you've seen it, it was a film on the Cuban Missile Crisis with Kevin Costner. 
and it's it's it, and you can see the extreme low budget use of um, uh, of of airplanes because of the lack of direct access to the Pentagon uh, infrastructure. Anyway, side note for your Googling endeavors later on. Um, <laughs> in the interwar period, the period between the world wars, propagandist Edward Bernays, nephew of Sigmund Freud, would perfect techniques of covert propaganda in modern democracy like no other. Bernays saw propaganda as a solution to what he considered the problems of democracy in peacetime. He was afraid of the anxieties and unconscious drives of voters and believed they needed to be countered by employing psychoanalysis on a massive scale for which he developed a model called Democracy, of which you see the model displayed here. In Democracy, an invisible government of propaganda experts would employ psychoanalysis on a massive scale to find out what citizens wanted, even before citizens could know what they wanted themselves. In this context, in this democracy, paradoxically, the need to vote becomes obsolete. The infrastructure itself knows better what you want than you can ever know yourself. So the very gesture of individual choice in terms of voting, it becomes completely unnecessary. And that's a vision, of course, not far off from the work of uh, contemporary companies such as Cambridge Analytica and their use of so-called psychography techniques by amassing millions of Facebook profiles trying to create personalized profiles based on which you can target information directly with the hope of influencing referenda and elections uh, through covert messaging, uh, as was the case with the Brexit referendum, as has been the case with the election of Donald Trump. Of course, the difficulty with Cambridge Analytica is that they are extremely good propagandists in suggesting that they have much more, that they have more power than they actually have. In the end, these psychography techniques are extremely ineffective because they are built on the idea of creating such personalized profiles that you would need an enormous amount of um, varying advertisements to really target someone in an effective way. Facebook itself is a much more, remains a much more effective targeting tool than the kind of derouting of using Facebook through Cambridge Analytica. Nonetheless, the vision that they espouse, this vision of um, uh, the, the, the vision of, of using intimate psychological knowledge, intimate behavioral knowledge in order to build effective constituencies to get one regime of power uh, elected or another, comes very close to the model that was proposed through democracy by uh, Bernays. So if propaganda can emerge in democracy as well in dictatorship, then there remains a question, then what defines propaganda exactly? And following the title of my book, what exactly is the role of art in this process? In the late 80s, Noam Chomsky and Edward Herrmann proposed a propaganda model that explained modern propaganda as a performance of power. Propaganda as a performance of power that aims to shape reality according to the interests of elites through the infrastructures of politics, the economy, the military-industrial complex, and especially the mass media. There's a wonderful film from 1992 um, called Manufacturing Consent. It's kind of like somewhere between cinema and documentary in which Chomsky explains the propaganda model through the very means of mass media. So you see him appear continuously in gigantic screens and projections using the very infrastructures of communication uh, that he analyzes in the documentary at the same time. Propaganda, Chomsky and Hermann explained, 
operates through filters that aim to establish a normative reality through the manufacturing of consent. And they, their work makes clear that we should not understand propaganda simply as an act of messaging. Propaganda cannot be reduced to a single message that needs to be, that needs to be put across. One poster or one film is not propaganda. Propaganda aims to construct reality as such. And in order to do so, it operates through as many platforms as possible. So what you see here in terms of the filters in the chomsky hermann propaganda model, monopolization is a, is a, is a key one uh, that relates to control over infrastructures. All the all-red colonial cable network is a perfect example. If you control the means of communication, you can control which information comes to the surface when, in what form, the broadness of its circulation. This is one way of, of starting to control a narrative, of starting to manufacture consent, as Chomsky and Hermann say. This also relates to source control. So it's not only about the means of communication, it's also about controlling the very source of, uh, of information. FLAC is the term that uh, Chomsky and Hermann used for what today we would call fake news, conscious insertion of misinformation to derail a dominant or normative narrative, start to create structural doubt in order to insert a new one. And of course, anti-communism was a crucial filter in terms of uh, establishing an us versus them divide, us the free liberal capitalist democratic West versus them, um, the barbaric, barbaric red uh, threat, both uh, uh, trying to destabilize our societies from within and trying to invade from the outside. Of course, today we see the exact same filter manifest in uh, an anti-Islamism filter. Very similar narratives of the Cold War that transformed into the context of the war on terror. So propaganda needs infrastructures for these filters to operate. It needs infrastructures like the mass media, but it also needs narratives. Stories about where we come from as a society, who we are and who we need to become, or who we need to become once again, which of course is the case in the master narratives of Trumpism and the alt-right, this uh, mythical idea of, um, that is embodied in the slogan, make America great again, that our future is somehow, our future goes through a manufactured past. So we need to become what we, I mean, return to a mythical idea of a nation or a people that never existed in the first place, that is then projected as our common Future. It's a really weird kind of retro, uh, retro futurism or retro science fiction. And it needs and so propaganda needs narratives. It needs it needs sorry it needs infrastructures. It needs narratives, and it needs an imagination of the world that it aims to create. I mean, here the Trump border wall, of course, is an example where an infrastructure, a wall, at the same time is also its narrative. The wall tells us a story about who is us on one side of the wall and who is them on the other side of the wall. So it has this double function of both providing infrastructure and being part of a particular uh, narrative. I thought also about, <coughs> I came across uh, Australia's uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his uh, obsession with Game of Thrones and especially his embrace of the Game of Thrones character Jon Snow because of his heroic fight against the White Walkers coming from behind the wall, which in this case, of course, is an immediate dog whistle with regards to the brutal policies aimed to maintain an Australian offshore wall uh, in the form of the refugee camps on uh, Nauru and uh, Manus Island. Of course, this kind of, these are, these are when it is not, um, when it's not completely acceptable, 
or there's not a complete consent to perpetuate these kind of us versus them uh, dichotomies directly using a detour through popular culture as, a, as an allegory for your actual political convictions can be a very effective uh, strategy when it comes to establishing the us versus, the us versus them um, dichotomy. The far right alternative for Germany cultivates this dichotomy through what they call a poster exhibition. It's titled Learning from Europe's History. And it literally uses displaced Orientalist paintings aimed to warn against mass migration turning Europe into Eurabia. Here you see the original um, painting. According to historians that study the painting, this uh, woman is actually not a European woman, but an Egyptian woman that, of course, would challenge the particular narrative for which the AFD is using the, using the imagery. But that is here, of course, not, not the point. The point is to use historical artifacts use historical paintings as a way to legitimize particular policies, uh, racist policies of the present. So in these examples from popular culture to historical artworks, we already see how the performance of power as art, propaganda art, becomes a crucial component to script, to compose, to stage, to visualize new realities into being. The ongoing war on terror has employed various artistic strategies to transform existing realities into new ones. First of all, through the use of what I call state abstractions. An example is the work Guantanamo Diary by Mohamedou Ould Slahi, who was detained on false charges for 14 years in Guantanamo Bay War Prison, during which he wrote a manuscript detailing torture and abuse by guards. That's the manuscript that you see here. But when, due to, due to the pressure of his lawyers, the manuscript was finally released, um, black rectangles littered the pages. So this is literally the book that was published because Mohamedou decided, together with his lawyers, that they would include the censorship uh, as a way of showing the confrontation between his testimony and the anonymous multi-layered testi uh, multi testimony of the censors of what they consider to be um, information that would threaten the uh, integrity or stability of the, of the state. So Mohamedou's testimony becomes cancelled. His reality is invisibilized by the censors. Only a state abstraction uh, remains. Now, this is very interesting. One of Mohamedou's editors did an analysis trying to reconstruct what was censored and why, because the argument of the State Department is we need to censor certain information that would, uh, would, uh, be, uh, would create a instability or possible threat, future threat to, uh, to the state, to the United States. So here's a sentence of a conversation between a guard and Mohamedou that Mohamedou recalls. Uh, and the guard says, uh, no worry, don't worry, you're going to go back to your family, he said. And then Mohamedou writes, when he said so, I couldn't help breaking in, and then there's this censorship. So the word that is censored here is tears. I couldn't help break into tears. So that's the information that is too sensitive for the State Department to release. And that opens a very, very important question. Why is it too sensitive? because it would allow an emotional and affective identification with the person writing testimony. He is not the uh, dehumanized, 
uh, he's not a dehumanized abstract body of the terrorist. He is a person who's actually capable of, of, of um, displaying testimony and building a relationship or an effective relationship with the reader. This is the threat, because this threatens the maintenance of the us versus them dichotomy. So by erasing one reality through state abstractions, through this massive monochromes of censorship, war on terror propaganda arts can then start to create another. You remove one reality in order to start to construct another. One example is its use of spectacular immersive theater in the form of the two-year top-off, top officials exercise. I love the dramatic effect of this door. <laughs> so top officials, top officials. Top officials uh, consists of fictional attack scenarios that involve so-called weapons of mass destruction used by terrorist agents. So this is a, a map of one of these massive immersive theatrical uh, exercises. It took place in 2003 in Seattle and Chicago, and it involved 8,000 participants that consisted both of government officials and citizens with a budget of $15 million. So that's the scale of the uh, top of top officials exercise, immersive theatrical exercises related to weapons of mass destruction. So the scenario of which you see one page here, and here's the image of the actual um, theater playing out. The scenario of top of two begins with a fictional Middle Eastern terrorist network known as GLODU, that stands for Group for the Liberation of Orangeland and the Destruction of Others, GLODU. They enact a large-scale radiological attack in Chicago and Seattle. The scenario was played out based on a 200-page script, staged in these dramatic decors, developed by Scenery Production House Production Support Services, which is a group that normally creates props for films and theater. So in this, in this bizarre situation, top-off participants become a kind of twisted spect actors in the sense that they stage and witness their own destruction by non-existing enemies, in this case, the terrorist organization GLODU. As a result, imagining and staging terror creates effective bonds as it strengthens an idea, you, you rehearse the idea of who is us in the us versus them narrative. So in the war on terror, in a very perverse sense, it is not what binds us that defines our social contract, but what threatens us. And this Massive rehearsal is meant, of course, to embody that threat in a systematic way. It's important to note that <clears throat> certain techniques of war on terror propaganda art have equally been adopted by actors who came into being due to the instability the war on terror created in the first place. The Islamic State, for example, has not only developed state abstractions through the destruction of statues and artifacts of the Mosul Museum, as you see here, but expanded its iconoclastic techniques into the, into the realm of the mass media as well. On April 9, 2015, the Islamic State's online militia Cyber Caliphate began the operation hashtag Operation France. They hacked 11 channels of the French broadcasting network TV Saint Monde, as well as turning its website and social media accounts dark. The only text appearing on these black canvases was the signature Je suis Is, Je suis Isis, a wordplay on the Je suis Charlie, I am Charlie slogan that was popularized after attacks by Islamic State members on the headquarters of satirical French journal Charlie Hebdo. So for a moment, this online cyber attack 
stop the screens from producing any moving history. And this erasure of image history represents a major step back in time to the Islamic State's desired year zero, the return to the age of its prophet. It is upon this monochrome black, this state abstraction, that the Islamic State constructs this new, their own new cultish reality. So as we can see in war on terror, propaganda art, abstraction and figuration are not necessarily oppositional, but rather complementary. What one erases, the other replaces in the process of constructing a new reality. Now, constructing a new reality is a dangerous process. Removing archives, removing memory through state abstractions create gaps that allow to insert new images and narratives. For example, while George W. Bush invaded Arab countries despite continuously stating that their enemy was not Islam but terrorism, um, movements such as the alt-right have instead declared a total and inevitable clash of civilizations, including the bizarre um, narratives such as we see here placed by CNN, Trump calls Obama founder of ISIS, and CNN finds it necessary to try to conclude the debunking of that very same statement in the, in the very same sentence. An example in this context would be the work of Steve Bannon, the former campaigner for Trump and editor of the alt-right Breitbart News. An example of um, of how the master narratives, he's an example of how the master narratives of the war on terror were hijacked and further radicalized. We can see that most clearly in Bannon's work as an alt-right propaganda filmmaker, which were central to a recent exhibition project that I developed called Steve Bannon, a propaganda retrospective of which you see here one of the rooms. Over the course of 15 years, Bannon made 10 documentary-styled film pamphlets part of what he termed his own brand of kinetic cinema. And then he explains kinetic cinema as being inspired on the work of Sergei Eisenstein, Lenny Riefenstahl, and Michael Moore. And of course, in that incredibly hybrid and contradictory set of historical cinematic references, there's immediately that this characteristic signature of alt-right rhetoric, where it is continuously unclear where the border of irony begins and where serious and dangerous forms of white supremacy start. And, and this use of irony is a, an inc incredibly important, and contradiction is an, and ambiguity is a very important technique for the old right to uh, insert dog whistles, to be, to be able to say something and pull it back immediately. Ah, you left cultural Marxist generalists, you have no sense of humor, you didn't understand the irony of of this statement. Nonetheless, you have just pitched Lenny Riefenstahl as the foundation of your cinematic work. So, um, kinetic cinema. That is uh, Bannon's, uh, let's say, that is his cinematic vocabulary consisting of fast-paced narratives, avalanches of stock, stock footage aimed in his own words to, I quote him, overwhelm an audience. His first film <clears throat> is in the face of Evil from 2004, a glorified portrait of Ronald Reagan's fight against the Soviet Union, but which ends with the attack on the Twin Towers. 
And it is in these final scenes that Bannon introduces his philosophy of a cyclical evil. What was once Nazism and communism is today Islamic terrorism. And if you look uh, closely, you can see that out of the, uh, the, the ashes and rubble of the Twin Towers, the kind of ghostly appearance of bin Laden uh, emerges as a literal uh, manifestation of this endless reincarnation of evil, as um, uh, Bannon puts it. Simultaneously, as he argues in his film Generation Zero from 2011, we face even so dangerous enemy from the enemies from the inside, cultural Marxists and the globalist elite that emerged from the hedonist culture of the 60s and 70s and aimed to tear apart the traditional nuclear family and put individual desire above communal and religious values. And to fight this multi-headed enemy, a new 21st century Reagan is necessary to lead us into an epic civilizational struggle, lead us into the clash of civilizations. One of the most used metaphors by Bannon in almost every single one of his films are banknotes, burning banknotes, flying banknotes, flushed banknotes. And of course, this, uh, the American banknote, its slogan, in God we trust, uh, this for him manifests that the moment that individual gratification and hedonism uh, hyper-individualism becomes the dominant value in a society, the very notional value as something that always places itself under a higher spiritual uh, authority um, evaporates. So it's a, it's a metaphor for this uh, structural disintegration that the cultural Marxists and globalists are trying to bring about. In 2011, Bannon's new Reagan was Tea Party leader Sarah Palin, about whom Bannon made the biopic The Undefeated, in which Palin is represented as the embodiment of religious and family values, fighting globalists and Islamists simultaneously in her endeavor to establish a free market within national boundaries under God. If you are not familiar with who is Sarah Palin, I uh, seriously envy you and I will spare you <laughs> further context to this particular character. Um, nonetheless, it's not for nothing that Bannon called Palin Trump before Trump. Bannon called Palin Trump before Trump. The ideological narratives and symbols of white Christian economic nationalism that we have come to know as, know as Trumpism were perfected through Bannon's propaganda art, well before Trump entered into the political arena. So in the darkest way possible, Bannon's artistic imagination preceded political transformation. He also spoke of the different characters in his film, from Reagan to Palin to Trump, as imperfect vehicles as ways to transmit, uh, transmit a message, not necessarily these people being its embodiment. So what we can see through these examples is that the performance of power and the performance of power as art, propaganda and propaganda art, are different depending on the kind of power in question. War on terror and alt-right propaganda might overlap, but the realities that they construct, construct differs substantially. Speaking of propagandas in the plural, also opens a way to explore the under-highlighted history of emancipatory propaganda arts, meaning the role of artists and cultural workers who develop their artistic work within popular mass movements that aim for a fundamental reorganization and redistribution of power to construct reality after collective rather than elite interests. And to approach propaganda from this proposition of um, an emancipatory propaganda art would also mean that we need to, to 
um, rethink the original Chomsky and Hermann, Hermann propaganda model to move from um, filters through which elite power tries to establish a normative society, a manufacturing of consent that supports its own interests, towards a model that is based on demands that emerge through popular mass movements. Demands such as democratization, which stands fundamentally opposed to monopolization, public knowledge, that stands opposed to source control, transparency, that stands opposed to flak or fake news, collectivity in the face of the, the anti-communism, anti-Islamism uh, dichotomy. So far, what I introduced was a history of forms of elite propagandas, whether in the context of the war on terror or the old right. But what would be a history of emancipatory propagandas from past to present? The first and second propaganda movements in the Philippines, for example, that manifested from the late 19th century onwards, were anti-colonial, anti-imperialist campaigns against Spanish and later US occupation, the propaganda movements. And these movements brought about their own cultural and artistic practices, such as the use of effigies, large-scale protest puppetry, in people's tribunals against their oppressors. These were some photos I had a chance to make uh, working for a week with the Ugat Lahi Artist Collective that makes these large-scale effigy protest puppets every year uh, during the State of the Union address of the uh, president at that time. And while he gives uh, uh, the, the, the speech parallel the popular, different popular movements, trade unions, feminist organizations, move with the puppet through the street of Manila, scorning it, giving speeches, accusing it before setting it on fire, collectively rehearsing the possibility of um, winning, or at least rehearsing the, maintaining through this rehearsal, this performative gestures, the possibility of justice over um, their oppressor. In 1922, it was the Jamaican poet and writer Claude McKay that declared to be proud of being a propagandist when speaking at the fourth Congress of the Communist International, where he propagated new alliances between the struggles of black peoples in the US and the Soviet Union. And in 1926, writer, historian, and civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois lectures at the National Association of Color People, where he declares, all art is propaganda and ever must be, despite the wailing of the purists. I stand in utter shamelessness and say that whatever art I have for writing has been used always for propaganda, for gaining the right of black folk to love and enjoy. I do not care them for any art that is not used for propaganda, but I do care when propaganda is, is confined to one side while the other is stripped and silenced. In 1925, it was Upton Sinclair that claimed that all art is propaganda, because art had always been an instrument of ruling powers, like the church and the state. But as revolutionary socialist movements swept the world, Sinclair called, called upon artists to no longer make art in the world as it existed, but to join the revolutionary forces to make a world instead. Not making art in the world as it is, but making worlds. Making a leap further into the 20th century, it was Lucy Lippard, who in the 70s and 80s revitalized propaganda arts by proposing a practice of intimate feminist propaganda art, specifically built uh, on feminist artists' work in video performance and what she um, emphasizes as uh, the artistic practice of meetings, of assemblies, 
of intimate gatherings in which other counter-narratives could emerge, which he then discusses as intimate feminist propaganda art. And more recently, Donna Haraway argued for the importance of a propaganda practice to tell important truths in diverse tonalities in the process of building multi-species coalitions. And here's, of course, a wonderful image of how, what such a multi-species coalition would look like. <laughs> it's one thing you can definitely trust Donna Haraway. And so these are just fragments of a larger history and presence of emancipatory propaganda art crisscrossed through different histories and geographies. It shows how a different performance of power from anti-colonial to civil rights, socialist, feminist, radical ecological movements enables new models of propaganda and propaganda art. In the present, we can see various artists and collectives working directly with and, and in popular mass movements that could be discussed as a form of popular propaganda art. Artist Matthijs de Bruyne, for example, is embedded in the labor union and creates what he, uh, cre he and creates mobile trash museums, such as the one that you uh, see here, that highlight the harsh working conditions of undocumented cleaners and their demands for social security. So in the trash museums, the objects that are on display on the, on the yellow walls that mimic the yellow cloth that the cleaners use in their daily work, we see objects displayed that are not necessarily artworks, but are objets trouvés or ready-mades that were collected by the cleaners together with testimony on uh, what on the object they encountered that goes from, uh, from lost letters to toys, from drug needles to, uh, to dildos. And, uh, it gives, it, there's, a, there's a personal testimony that gives an insight in the undercurrents of hyper-consumerist societies in which they, that they clean up and in which they work and fight and struggle for the most minimum, uh, minimum demands of social uh, security. In the context of the climate justice movements, uh, we, can see the, we can think of works of um, embedded art collectives like Not an Alternative, that have created slightly similar alternative mobile museums, in this case highlighting the influence of the fossil fuel industry in natural history museums. So, um, not an alternative, and their project, the Natural History Museum, they both map uh, the influence of uh, um, industries like Koch Industries that sponsor a lot of natural history museums, but also ask the question, why? because the natural history museums that they sponsor maintain an idea of nature that is somehow external to human behavior. It's nature as that eternal landscape on which we, uh, on which we reflect or that we fear in a kind of, in a kind of a sublime sense, but somehow it is always separated from us. We are not nature, nature is external to us. Whereas the work of Not an Alternative, of course, tries to show that the very, our very understanding of nature needs, needs to consider human behavior as being implicated in it and as human behavior and extractivist practice as changing the very constellation uh, of what we consider ecology or climate. So here in this case, in a very beautiful and also tragic uh, diorama of an uh, ice, bear in, ice bear in the no longer neutralized um, ice, uh, iceberg uh, of the former Natural History Museum. In popular propaganda art, we can also include the field of organizational art, in which artists create artworks in the forms of new institutions. And in a way, the Natural, the Natural History Museum is such a new institution, often directly inspired by and in support of popular mass movements. 
So we can think of the Immigrants Movement International by Tania Bruguera, an artwork in the form of a campaign that she develops in close collaboration with undocumented people and refugees, in which instead of demanding citizenship and legal protection, the campaign goes many steps further and declares the immigrants as the 21st century global citizen, according to their manifesto. The immigrant is the global citizen. So in this context, in this campaign, the Immigrant Movement International's demand is that the obsolete model of the nation state should transform to meet the reality of global migration. So it's not the migrant that needs to explain to the state, why do I have a right to exist? It is the other way around. The state has to explain what right it has to exist compared facing the realities of global migration. Thinking of the context where we are here, um, the work of Richard Bell, uh, embassy from 2013 ongoing, that builds on the heritage of the Aboriginal tent embassy uh, that is placed opposite to the old parliament in Canberra since 1972, could be considered as, as another example of organizational art uh, practice. And here we see the uh, original Aboriginal tent embassy. Bell's embassy has been traveling across the world for, for many years now uh, in order to propagate what he calls an international distress signal, repurposing the structures of representation of the occupier, the parliament, the embassy, um, in defense of indigenous rights to self-determination. That's something that resonates actually quite closely to existing um, uh, mass movements and structures of indigenous representation in this country, such as the Aboriginal provisional governments issuing of Aboriginal passports, that, uh, an effort that dates back to the late uh, 80s. And you could very well imagine um, Bell's embassy um, promoting the, uh, the Aboriginal passports, like the, the boundary between the organizational artwork and actual, actual political practice become very, um, very intimate. This, I thought, was somehow a very moving image of the father of Julian Assange holding up an Aboriginal passport that was granted to Assange by the um, Aboriginal provisional government. And that, that, that really performs uh, an idea of self-determination and also performs uh, a solidarity between um, nations who have experienced the structural violence of occupation and, and exploitation and recognize the moment that that same mechanisms are being applied to a citizen of Australia to which the Australian government is unwilling to provide any uh, protection. A final example of emancipatory propaganda art that I would like to share with you relates to stateless insurgencies. And that might seem somehow paradoxical because statelessness is often considered the equivalent of powerlessness. But several various contemporary anti-colonial and liberational movements have shown otherwise and in a way the work of Richard Bell and that of the Aboriginal Provisional Government already give testimony to that. The claim to a stateless power, we are able to grant you citizenship despite everything. An example that I want to share with you here specifically is that of the Rojava revolution in North Syria where an alliance of Kurds, Arabs and Assyrians have developed an alternative political model in the midst of the Syrian civil war called stateless democracy. Stateless democracy based on local self-governance, gender equality and communal economy. Uh, images like these might be more familiar, the women's protection units that have defended the Rojava autonomous region against attacks of the Islamic State, against attacks of the Assad regime, currently are defending the region from the invasion of the 
Turkish army. Less familiar images might be these uh, parliament in uh, former, sorry, uh, a former theater uh, of the Assad regime in the city of Amude, which uh, was reclaimed and turned into a people's parliament as a local parliament for the project of, uh, of self-governance that's being developed in the region. And I, I, I find this, uh, this image somehow always moving because it feels somehow doesn't feel coincidental that it would be a theater that you would use to begin working on the imagination of what an alternative form of democracy could or should be. Now, artists in the Rojava revolution have developed practices, practices based on this new paradigm of stateless power, this ideal of a stateless democracy. Here you see the work of sculptor Abdullah Abdul, uh, who explores the notion of statelessness through his construction of what he calls a contemporary museum of a lost history. His clay and stone sculptures are modeled in part on actual historical findings, many of which were looted by colonial powers, and in part they are inspired by Mesopotamian mythology. So they move somewhere between the, um, the, the institutional, the museal, and the mythological. Abdul's stateless museum claims Rojava and its stateless democracy not as a break in the history of the state, but, in, but as a continuation of a much older history of statelessness in the face of the, the, stateless, the history of statelessness in the context of ancient Mesopotamia, the history of the state is nothing but a, a, a fragment in a much longer embodied experience of other forms of uh, self-governance. Another example of artists working uh, through, with, through this model of status democracy in the Rojava region is the Rojava Film Commune, a collective of artists and students that literally organize and live as a commune and that employ the decision-making model of status democracy in their day-to-day -day artistic practice, in their collective work. They educate young filmmakers, translate landmark films into Kurdish, introduce local population to cinema history, and produce their own documentaries and feature films. A very powerful example is Stories of Destroyed uh, Cities, a film that opens with the images of, images of cities that were destroyed in the Civil War. We see a camera that moves past wrecked schools. Uh, the camera moves past wrecked school buildings, clothing stores, and there's a voiceover, we hear the ghostly voice of people that might once have lived or worked there. We never see them, we only see the destroyed infrastructures. But what is very interesting about the film is that this uh, segment goes on for a very long time. We only see, we hear the voices, but we don't see any people. We only see the destroy, destroyed infrastructures. And after some time, you start to believe that these voices might not only be the voices from the past, that these might be the voices of the future, that these might be ghosts of the future, those who will once inhabit the, there once again, inhabit these spaces again. And, and as such, it's a film that propagates the losses, those who sacrifice to liberate the cities, and possibilities of struggle, those who will live there once again at the same time. They, they propagate loss and and victory, in some sense, struggle at the, at, the, at the same moment. Yeah, 45 minutes. So let me round um, up. What I hope um, this introduction makes visible is how different structures of power generate different propagandas in the plural. Not propaganda, but propagandas in the plural. 
and that each of these propagandas aim to construct their own reality, their own hegemony, and together they shape the arena of the contemporary art struggle, the contemporary propaganda struggle. Now, the notion of the so-called age, age of uh, post-truth that I also referenced in the beginning, the post-truth age, I think this concept is a very tricky one because it suggests that somehow before post-truth, there was truth. But if we think of the, the crisis that we face, it, Trump did not initiate the climate catastrophe or the radical precarization of working class. So-called common sense, free trade, neoliberals in neat suits in the halls of Congress, in Parliament, they did. And they were, that's supposedly the consensus that we were, that we were returned, the kind of Biden consensus. But they are the true criminals that allowed the symptom of Trumpism to, to emerge. So it, there, there's a risk that uh, just as Make America Great Again has this, there's this brutal nostalgia of reconstructing a past that never existed and projecting it as our common future. But post-truth, the logic of post-truth is exactly the same. The term is used by a particular liberal elite that wants to go back to a society, a structure of politics and economy that benefited their interests, but not our interests. So I think this is important to emphasize that, this, that we can't permit ourselves this liberal nostalgia. There is no reality to return to. We have nothing to return to. There are only the realities that we collectively construct ourselves. So in that light, I, I, what I try to do with the book is two things, to revitalize propaganda studies, to develop strong collective propaganda literacy, to deconstruct dominant infrastructures, narratives, imaginations that are driving us to a futureless world defined by authoritarianism, precarity and climate catastrophe. But to understand how propaganda works is not enough to stop it. You can understand it, it will not necessarily change it. And for that reason, I propose to popularize emancipatory propaganda work, to create infrastructures, narratives, imaginations, to propagate new egalitarian worlds into reality. Now, in the last um, minutes that I have, I just want to uh, share with you very quickly some of the examples of my own work, just to give you a sense of from which position I am writing this, uh, exploring these questions of propaganda research and emancipatory propaganda work. Um, in which, of course, the history of emancipatory propaganda art has influenced uh, my own practice enormously. James already mentioned, uh, since 2012, I have uh, collaborated with stateless and blacklisted organizations to create alternative parliaments to challenge the us versus them uh, dichotomy, to create new alliances between um, citizens who oppose the war on terror and organizations directly attacked by it. So, the, the, these alternative parliaments, part of a project called New World Summit, are an attempt to, um, to, to overcome or work through the us versus them by dichotomy by reassembling who is us, potentially citizens who uh, reject or oppose the policies of the war on terror, have more in common with those who are being prosecuted through the very same war on terror than with the criminal states that impose these laws upon us. So here's the question, not necessarily to reject the notion of us versus them, but to ask the question, yeah, but who is us? Like with, with who, with, with who am I, do I actually stand in solidarity and common interest in this context? 
With the Pan-European Movement, uh, DM25 stands for Democracy in Europe Movement 2025, and various other transnational organizations. The last years I've been working to develop campaign assemblies and studies for new forms of infrastructures, these kind of neo-constructivist displays of a European Union in crisis and uh, in transformation symbols to push forward alternative scenarios for uh, different unions beyond the leave and remain dichotomy, another tragic dichotomy where you have leave, the leave campaign that is fully occupied by uh, ultranationalists and um, racists that want to return to, a, to an empire that, that for good reasons disappear, disappeared in the first place, um, largely. Uh, whereas, on the other hand, the Remain position, the Remain camp, who are they? The Eurocratic austerity elite that brutalized countries like Greece uh, in, in terrifying, terrifying ways. I live in Greece and it's really the, the violence. It's the propaganda that is embedded in the use of these terms, sanctions, austerity, this is terrible. Like they sanitize the reality of what it means when you, when you destroy the infrastructures of life support uh, of a country, whether that is Iran or, or Greece. So here the question is, what is the role of art in breaking through these dichotomies? What would be third options for, third, fourth, fifth options for future feminist unions, ecological unions, stateless unions, communalist unions? And what are the infrastructures to support such alternative conceptions of future transnational unions? This is a design for a parliament that I made uh, for several pro-European Scottish independence platforms. So they want to separate from the United Kingdom, but they want to remain part of the EU. And we found an oil rig, a decommissioned oil rig in the North Sea that, that is exactly located on the boundary between um, waters of uh, the, the waters of um, um, European um, member states and the United Kingdom. So it stands in a really strange paradoxical place where two different political geographies overlap. It is both Scottish and it is European at the same time. So the, the parliament kind of arises there as, a, as an extension, proposing also to think through this idea of a independent Scotland, interdependent with the EU, as a potential new model to think of an extraterritorial politics and extraterritorial parliamentarism. With Florian Malzacher, I co-founded the Training for the Future camp, a utopian training camp for art activists and transnational political organizations, and in a way, uh, a place that, where we try to create a counterstructure to the castles and think tanks where the alt-right plots its takeovers. The alt-right and ultranationalists have a really excellent organization when it comes to Elite, elite castles and villas where they do trainings in, in, in campaigning and, and in voter manipulation. And we really need infrastructures where we can train our futures, our counter futures uh, as well. So here you see some impressions of a three-day training camp with uh, 500 uh, participants in which we, we explored between art, activism and politics how to embody, pre-enact alternative uh, futurities. With artists and activists in the climate movement, I've been recently working on alternative biosphere to train comradeship between human <clears throat> and more than human uh, actors. So what you see here is a biosphere constructed in an underground former nuclear facility. Uh, the, the hole in the ground is where the reactor used to be. Now it's where there's an assembly of uh, meteorites uh, emerging around it, a human assembly. Uh, assembly of proletarian plants, and here a biosphere of neo-constructivist ammonites. Now this might seem like a curious exploration of 
uh, of assembly beyond a human-centered idea of, of, of assembly. But I feel particularly uh, with the Ammonites, there is an extremely important dialogue to have Ammonites. Uh, our family of octopus lived between 366 million years ago, a time frame and a, a species trajectory that for humans might seem extremely difficult to capture. Uh, but they are, were also the ones witnessing the fifth mass extinction. They are fossils. We are fossils in the making in the sixth mass extinction. Weirdly, across this vast uh, area, areas, these vast spaces of time, we share an extremely intimate experience of um, being, uh, being evidence and being um, witnesses, being witnesses of these fundamental changes in our ecosystem. So I'm, I'm a very strong. I make very strong plea for building uh, comradeship and dialogue and learning from uh, neo-constructivist Ammonites. Um, a project that also relates to an ongoing collaboration with artist Laure Prouveau on what we call obscure parliaments and obscure unions that are centered on thinking of uh, ecologies today as something that do not only consist of organic parts, but that our understanding ecologies today also means taking into account toxic hurricanes and plastic flo floodings, um, that there is an element of uh, changed conception of nature, like not an alternative argues through their Natural History Museum, that is now an inherent part of what we should consider nature or a shared ecology that has its own political agency. And a final example to, that comes back more directly to uh, my relationship uh, as an artist uh, in and, and with uh, political mass movements, for the autonomous government of Rojava, I developed a new public parliament that opened in 2018 uh, in the region. We developed it from 2015 to 2018. It serves as a symbol for status democracy, as a monument somehow to its values and, and, and ideals that is very strongly embodied in the idea of it being a public parliament, a parliament as a public space that is not excluded from the public domain, but an inherent uh, part of it. But apart from this symbolic function, it also has a practical function. It functions as an actual parliament, as a space where uh, artistic and political imagination meet. So, as a, these as a, just to give a little bit of context uh, from where I developed and wrote the book, and as you can imagine, many of, uh, many of the case studies, interviews with artists from Rojava might be becoming familiar with the work, with their work are also the direct result of developing uh, projects like these with the autonomous, uh, autonomous government. So the, the relationship between being an artistic researcher and an, and, and an artist are uh, really deeply interconnected. And I hope that they show something also about how um, artistic, how in this case I implicate artistic, my artistic competence directly within the performance of power of social movements and political organizations it doesn't mean that artistic and political competences are the same, um, but I hope that some of the examples um, in the talk when it comes to emancipatory propaganda artwork shows that uh, artistic and political competences can help to shape one another when it comes to bringing into being new egalitarian um, realities. So thank you so much for being so patient with me. Um, this is it. Thank you. Yes.
too bright? It's quite bright, yes. <laughs> um, well, um, thank you so much, Jonas. That was absolutely fantastic. I'm actually going to pass the, the uh, comparing duties over to Mikhnir here. Um, um, we have a few minutes for questions. So. Um, hi everyone, thanks so much Jonas for this uh, roller coaster of a lecture, quite thrilling. Um, my main job will be to circulate the microphone, but before I do that, before I attend to that task, I would like to mention that for those of you whose interest has been piqued by uh, tonight's presentation, there will be a second episode in Jonas' very generous presence in, in Melbourne, uh, a talk followed by a conversation that he gives on the 24th in the morning at Monash University, at MAMA, uh, the Monash University Museum of Art. A few seats are still available for, for that occasion, where, uh, which, which follows uh, upon uh, tonight's presentation um, and focuses on Jonas' own uh, work as a propaganda artist. So this has been largely devoted to, to his propaganda research. We will look more closely to his propaganda work on the 24th. If any of you are interested, please let me know at the end after the, the Q&A. I wonder if there are any questions. Yes. Hello. Hi. Thanks for your talk, man. Um, you, you're, you're dealing a lot with uh, Steve Bannon, and I think one of perhaps the, 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 the interesting aspects of Steve Bannon is that he did something that was perhaps counterintuitive. Um, from his perspective, you would be a, a democratic propagandist, right? And I, I, I was just wondering, because for example, you were working with the, the Rojava, which is, for example, supported by uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy, Right, the, 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 the guy who, uh, yeah, he did, a, he did a film with them, sort of, yeah, as a, you know, ad advertising. Kurdistan in Iraq is not exactly the same as Kurdistan in Syria. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, but, okay, but, yeah. but Kurdistan, you know, it's a 19th century, Kurdish nationalism comes from 19th century, and, you know, has always been sort of the play ball of all great powers, so it's not a neutral thing or like an, you, no. know, it, you know, it has always been sort of, you know, it has coincided with the interests of NATO, let's say. So... I was wondering about your own sort of awareness, you know, that, for example, most of the art you presented is state-funded art. So I was just wondering, like, how you situate yourself, and, and I think you've already, like, indicated that, yeah, there's the, the, this, this question of how can art break through this thing. But then, again, there's always this sort of concrete question of, you know, where does the, the funding come from? And I was just wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Thanks. Um, yes, so maybe still, nonetheless, just to clarify a little bit that, that uh, um, Levy, really a most terrible uh, figure, of, we, uh, like somehow terrible um, fossil of like the worst possible engaged art that you can think of that still somehow roams this world and our conversations, unfortunately. Um, his support for the Iraqi, uh, the Iraqi part of Kurdistan, Kurdistan being separated over four states, really has a very different trajectory when it comes to uh, the idea of, of political nationalism than uh, particularly the Syrian and Turkish parts of, um, of, uh, of Kurdistan that are very strongly focused on developing non-state forms of, of self-governance. Obviously, these also exist of many different competing factions and it's not as, nothing is as singular or as simple as that, but the opposition between these two are quite strong and I wouldn't work 
uh, directly for government in the same way uh, if, I, uh, if it would uh, relate to traditional forms of, uh, of state building. Um, when it comes to the financing of, uh, of the projects, I mean, this actually, this, this example of the People's Parliament of Rojava is a more paradoxical financing structure because half of it was funded by the uh, autonomous government which commissioned the work, and the other half was funded by me. Half of that through public funding, half of it through uh, sales of uh, architectural models of the parliament sketches that, that funded directly the production of the... But nonetheless, I mean, whether that money comes from, from state or market, either way, this is extremely problematic because in a non-egalitarian society, um, you are continuously dependent of structures of funding, infrastructures of life support that you simultaneously reject. So there's a continuous contradiction between, uh, between, ideal, between the world that you want to create and the world in which you exist, in, through which, where you have to um, repurpose and reclaim means to create that transition, that transformative, uh, transformative process. So yeah, that's an in, in, inevitably uh, conflictuous and contradictory and ambiguous process, which is one of the reasons why I always argue that I find the notion of propaganda art is always seen as something very one-dimensional and doctrinal, and I, and, uh, but I think it is an extremely ambiguous and hybrid and, and, and dangerous process partially do, of course, due to all of these, um, these contradictions that you mentioned. Hi. Um, first off, thank you for your talk, and thank Pleasure. you for the works you uh, make. Um, it's been quite inspirational. Uh, my question is similar, but very different in character. Um, you spoke a bit about Bernays and public opinion. Uh, and the creation there from public relations. I guess the whole entire talk had a very strong focus on propaganda between like state and mass relations, if I could put it in that way. Um, what about other states or other, uh, I guess, other power groups and those type of propaganda? I didn't really feel like there was anything touched on there. Do you have like, does that something that is involved with your work? You mean other forms of propaganda in the sense of non-state forms of? Non-state and non-mass. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the, um, in the, what I discuss in the book as the expanded state of the war on terror is in many ways no longer a state, is no longer a state infrastructure. The war on terror is absolutely a part of a, of a self-created economy of, of a, a privately funded military industrial complex that has an, has an extreme level of control over, uh, over state infrastructures. And in general, in the context of neoliberal regimes, the state has become, is at best a subsidiary of, of the market. Um, so in that sense, I, I think that um, um, I address in in the book I address various um, uh, I say it, the various components between public and private institutions that have merged in the context of the war on terror, for example. Of course, the Islamic State is uh, it is doubtful. It, it had an actual state blueprint. It was literally constructing a state along quite traditional lines of, of state buildings. Nonetheless, you would not necessarily consider it in that traditional sense. And of course, the work of the propaganda work, propaganda art work in popular mass movements, in stateless insurgencies like Rojava, I think challenge on a quite fundamental level um, the categories that define their uh, identity. Uh, for me, a really important difference between the traditional propaganda model and, and the, let's say, emancipatory propaganda model is the difference between defining a people and defining a people in the making. Traditional forms of propaganda, the Make American Great Again slogan is always about returning to an origin people, capital P. 
Whereas what we see in the work of popular mass movements is always about asking the question, which people? Who is appearing? And why are some appearing and others not? It's the paradox of the 99%. We say we are the 99%, but the 99% are never there. We evoke it somehow. We create a space where it is possible to appear as a people in the making, as a people that is seeking for um, narratives and imaginations that create uh, collectivity without these leaning on the traditional conceptions of uh, state or um, privatized state, so to say. So I think in these, particularly along the lines of the work of popular mass movements and uh, status insurgency, I, I hope to, that I challenge also this dominant role of the uh, traditional conception of the nation state. I, I hope, is that a clear answer? Somehow, not completely satisfied yet. Sorry. We do have time for more questions, but can I just get a quick show of hands? I think I've seen about 50. Um, who, who else? So there, there was a whole bunch, a wave of hands over here. So we have one up there, but who else has questions? Just so I get an idea. Okay, yeah. Up here, up here, up here. Okay. We'll see, we'll see what we can do. But um, How's it going? Yeah, thanks. Thanks hey. for the talk. Yeah, um, so I was curious about, as an artist yourself, the relationship you have with the quality of the work and how effective the propaganda is. Like, we can't all make a masterpiece like Transformers Dark of the Moon, as we saw. Um, but if Steve Bannon was as good as Martin Scorsese, would his messages be more effective? Is it something when you're making a sculpture or you're making a piece of work, like, this has to be really bitchin' to, like, transmit my message more powerfully? Is this something that you feel uh, the quality matters a lot more, or is it just sort of the deluge and quantity over quality? Hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a really great that's a really great question. Um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> and I would say that yeah. I mean, it depends on how you define quality, because. In, in many, of course, in many in, in the, from the perspective of many propagandists, quality is effect. It is about achieving change. It's about constructing a reality, an alternative reality, manufacturing a new consent. When you achieve that process of manufacturing consent, whatever the means were necessary were of quality. That is, that is most important. But of course, nonetheless, in that process, particular aesthetic sensibilities um, are nonetheless, can nonetheless be extremely important. Why does some uh, Hollywood blockbusters just disappear in the history of, of repetition and replication and do others suddenly stand out? It still has something to do with the, the capability of telling a story uh, differently. So despite the fact that of course a lot of our culture is dominated by infrastructures of circulation and, val and validation, let's say monopolized infrastructures that define what we see, why, when, and how much. Uh, still, I, I do think that visual literacy, which is but a crucial component of how I would define what is art and what artists do, visual literacy, I do think can still make a fundamental, can still make a fundamental um, difference. And uh, in my own practice, like the, the thinking of the parliament as a structure, for example, um, and what the parliament enables, the question of visual literacy has been extremely important in challenging the parliament as a generally centralized space, challenging the question of, um, of infrastructure in terms of the difference between the chair as a symbol of liberal individuated presence versus, uh, versus the um, bank, the 
not cows, but bands. Compared to the bench, which is, plays a huge, a very important role in many utopian architecture, because the bench is always a space that you negotiate. There can always be more people on the bench, depending on if you are willing to create space on the bench. And one person on the bench is a full bench, full bench, but ten people on the bench is also a full bench. Whereas a chair is a tragic figure of liberal individuation. It can only be you have a room full of people, and your eyes always go to the absent, because that's the only thing a chair can be, present or absent. It's like a really, it's a very, I think it represents particular liberal doctrine very, in a very infrastructural sense. I'm sorry that this might sound a bit ridiculous to go into these kind of details, which also include how many people can be in a room before a collective doesn't experience itself as a collective. My experience is 225. <laughs> I mean, which of course is not on the number, but this is, there's a moment where you are part of a, depending on the composition, and of course we tend to work a lot with circular and oval shapes, there's a moment where you are in a circle and somehow observing the circle from the outside, which is in general the paradox of a circle that it is both the most inclusive form and at the same time the most aggressive. Because when you, and when you are part of the circle from the beginning, it feels very inclusive. If you arrive late, the circle is the most exclusive form. The reason why I am mentioning all of this, uh, division of light also very important between speaker and, and so-called public to equate, equate light, heights, and that all of these aspects have to do with visual literacy, with how you read the space and how the conditions of a space, the visual conditions of a space, theatrical, performative, symbolic, uh, contribute to the appearance of a people, to the construction of a people, to the construction of a collectivity. And there, there is a direct relationship between visual literacy, being able to read form and dialogue through form, the morphologies that we create as artists, and uh, political possibilities that they, that they enable. So I would make an argument that, yes, like um, quality, or you could better, maybe better say competence, is a really crucial part of um, at least the kind of propagandas that I'm willing to explore as, as an artist. Um, thank you very much. So, oh, based over here. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, the, my question was hoping to get some of your thoughts on what seems to have been the improportionate success on the part of the alt-right um, in their propaganda and in normalizing um, discourse, which a few years ago um, was by the um, critical mass of the population seem, um, seemed relatively outlandish. Um, whether, whether that's part of them having access to infrastructure or more creative narrative. Um, so I was hoping to get some of your thoughts on their seeming success. Mm. I mean, the, um, the success is, uh, I think Angela, I generally don't agree with, with Angela Nagel on many things, but uh, what she describes as the Gramscian turn in the old right, I think is very accurate. That um, the, the idea that to change politics, you have to change culture first, and that you have to do that in a very durable and long-term way through universities, through art institutions, through popular media. Uh, change the narrative before you change, uh, before you take power. Change the possibilities of the imagination of, uh, before you um, translate these into actual claims to power or forms of, of, forms of governance. I think that has been that has been uh, uh, organized quite uh, structurally and, um, and what is important to take into account if we think of a figure like Bannon, for example, he's very, very exemplary for 
he's he's someone who understood that he needed to invest into in infrastructure as much as in narrative. In the 15 years of his films and cultural projects, uh, he organized his structural funding revenues, mainly from ultra-conservative families and foundations like the Mercer, Mercer family that shared ideological convictions but were able to provide him with millions and millions and millions of dollars to start to organize his, uh, his long-term campaign of developing Trumpism even before Trump existed as such, the doctrine of white Christian economic nationalism that is very much abandonism that was looking for, uh, for a vehicle. Um, and of course, the, 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 the uh, vulnerability of emancipatory politics is that we tend to seek for unity and synthesis between what we say we want to do and how we do it. So, and this, this relates to transparency and democratization and, and equal distribution of power. And that model of working is very slow, it's very tedious demands continuous negotiation of space to whose space belongs, who can appear, who cannot appear, who, who, who is part of it, who is not. The alt-right doesn't care at all about contradiction. Contradiction is their trademark. To do one thing, to say one thing, and to do something completely different, that is exactly, I mean, what is Trumpism other than that? And what is very important is, what, what is unfortunately very important about that, that strategy is that in that contradiction, they represent people. Because as people, we are contradictory. We are contradictory. What we say and what we do is always different. And we are, and we are attracted to ambiguity. We are attracted to contradiction. So this, I think, for emancipatory politics is a huge challenge. How can we start to think, despite the fact that obviously between what we say we want to do and what we do, there should be, there should be a, a synthesis. At the same time, somehow we need to create space for the pleasure and joy and passion of ambiguity and contradiction and hybridity that now I think too often um, we tend to almost, let's say, dogmatically uh, whip out of our respective platforms and movements. Jonas, thank you very much for coming to Australia and for writing a fantastic book which I look forward to read with a lot of pleasure and interest. Now, uh, my question relates to NATO and the European Union, who were instrumental in creating an artificial state in the last three years called uh, the Republic of North Macedonia. Right. And my question is, uh, who gave NATO and the European Union the right to deny us Macedonians our identity, culture, history, human rights, and democracy now in the 21st century with all the European parliaments voting for this disaster? Um, sorry, so you're, you're asking about who, has the, who had the right to deny the self-determination of North, of North Macedonia? Um, yeah, the nice right to culture and history. And I mean, I live half the time in Greece, so I'm very aware of the extremely um, uh, of the extremely um, polarized discussions about what constitutes Macedonian identity. If there is such a thing as Macedonian identity that stands separate from the history of Greek identity, it's very it's very clear. Yeah. Um, uh, part of the uh, specific Greek 
culture wars and probably one of the reasons why Tsipras lost the last elections for his willingness to partially acknowledge a semi-autonomous region within, the, an, existing, within an existing state. Um, who has the right? Well, those in power have, well, do not have the right, but claim the right who, has, who can appear in an interstate network of, uh, of global governance. And this is a question that very much sounds, stands similar for uh, Catalonians, for um, Basque independence movement, for uh, the Scottish independence movement, all with very different historical trajectories and all with very different imaginations of statehood. For me, the point is not so much does everyone have a right to a state? I think the question is more, what kind of state? As in, I'm not interested in promoting the existence or legitimacy of any states. I'm interested in promoting the legitimacy of new forms of egalitarian living and, and coexistence uh, um, that, in many cases, uh, challenge the traditional uh, institutional formats of the state and the way that, that the idea of the state has come has has, has started to, has come to uh, define and regiment our supposed national identities. Yeah, thank very you. Un th very unexpected question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you handled it brilliantly. Thank you so much, Jonas. Once again, thank you to you. As you want to uh, you want to end on the really political question. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.